Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Food is food. We don't give food emotional value. Emotional value is for feelings, relationships. It's not for food. You cannot give someone anorexia. There's no way because it's a biological process. Some people have illnesses of the body, some people have illnesses of the mind, and both are to be treated with respect, empathy, and without judgment. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor. And I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hello and welcome to another week of the Elevate podcast. Today's episode will focus on an area that has been one of the most requested interviews that I've had from parents over the last year, and that is on anorexia nervosa. This is a type of eating disorder where one feels a need to keep their weight as low as possible and a topic not taken lightly, as the number of families being affected by it is overwhelming. This, of course, is one conversation about one journey about the general condition, and I am sure there will be different perspectives and viewpoints on how one can handle such a difficult and overwhelming topic. Just wanted to remind you that we will be only looking through the lens of one side of one story of a parent who has experienced today. The NHS describes the conditions of those who suffer from anorexia as those that are trying to keep their weight as low as possible by not eating enough food or exercising too much, or both. This can make them very ill because they begin to starve. People with anorexia often have a distorted image of their bodies, thinking they're fat, even if they're underweight. Men and women of any age can get anorexia, but it is most commonly seen in young women, and it typically starts in the mid-teens. My guest today, who joins me from Los Angeles, is the mother of one of these teens. Her name is Nadina Suzu. She's an incredible mother who is sticking around after her daughter's recovery, thankfully, because it was other mothers sticking around after their kids were well that made the difference for her. Mother to three girls, Nadina is a recovery advocate in the eating disorder community and a peer coach to caregivers of children with anorexia. She is a strong advocate for children and their families, providing support and resources to parents and caregivers whose children are undergoing mental health and eating disorder treatment, passionate about paying it forward and building a safer, kinder world. Nadina also serves as a parent team member for the Positive Behaviour Interventions and Supports at Beverly Hills Unified School District. It is my great privilege to have Nadina join us on the Elevate podcast to share some of her own personal journey as a parent in this difficult situation with her own daughter, but also to shed light on how she has taken this challenge to become a much needed helping hand and an incredible source of support for others. Nadina, thank you so much for being part of the Elevate mission and speaking to us today. A very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ramita. I am honored to be in the Elevate podcast and I am moved by your words and your introduction. I appreciate it. With your permission, I would like to dedicate this podcast to a dear friend, Kaya Shaina Lia Bas Shulamis, and may she had a complete and prompt recovery and full recovery. This has been um, a long time coming. We've been talking on and offline for a while, and I've been very moved by your your story. And I think some of the experiences that you've had 
in your own journey and then subsequently helping others will be a really insightful conversation for us. So I think we'll we'll dive in. So you're not just a mom, you're, you're lots of things, but you are a mom to three beautiful girls. And it it's your eldest daughter's journey that brought you and sparked you onto the mission of supporting and helping other families who might be going through the very painful process that you've endured yourself. I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking us back to the moment or the moments in time that led you to getting your doctor diagnosed and getting the news that you were in some sort of danger with her? So I am, as you said, a mom of three girls. And this experience with my oldest daughter changed a lot of things in my life. It changed my outlook. Um, It taught me so much. I believe that we learned a a lot through the suffering and through such an unknown journey that we had no idea we were going to embark on. When she was 16 years old, she was diagnosed with an extreme form of anorexia nervosa. We did not see it coming. um, And I would say that that has nothing to do with being attuned to your kid because I think I was very attuned to her. Um, as was my husband. She was falling into this spiral down obsessive exercising. Um, She was a gymnast. Um, What was interesting about her is that she was a great student. She was such a good kid. She was a great daughter, a great sister. Um, She was always following the rules. She never gave us any hard times. The only thing she asked from us is, I want to do gymnastics. And we were like, of course, what's healthy, right? That engaging in the sport. And um, and she started wanting to do it more and more to the point that it did become an obsession. She, When I say that, I would want to exemplify what I mean. She would not go to birthday parties, for example, to go gy- to gymnastics. She would not celebrate her own birthday to not miss a gymnastics um, training session. When it became apparent that this was not going in a good direction, we made a consult with um, a registered dietitian um, who helped her initially. And then at some point we had to tell her that she had to feed herself appropriately for that level of um, of body um, demand that gymnastics almost on on an everyday basis met for her body. And she couldn't do it. And we said, we are, you know, taking a break from gymnastics until you are able to feed yourself in the right way. So you started to notice that her nutrition levels were deteriorating because of the amount of hours that she was spending in exercise? You're right. And that's exactly what triggered the eating disorder, which is um, an imbalance between what they get and how much energy they spend. The trigger of anorexia is as simple as that, is an energy imbalance. And it's a biological situation in which simply people consume less calories compared to what they expend. And that's what happened to my daughter. And not everybody that's in that's in a biological situation like this will develop anorexia. To develop anorexia, you have to have, quote unquote, the right biology in your organism. And when you go through an energy imbalance, that's when anorexia happens. So it's basically something they have inside, a biology thing, and an outside behavior, which is taking in, for any reason, less calories than what they take out. So like a predisposition of some sort, like a yeah, an inner biological makeup that makes them more prone to be susceptible. Exactly. What is important to note is that not all kids or people that will develop anorexia necessarily they want to lose weight. Some people develop anorexia if they have the right biology for it. For example, after dental extractions or after an illness in which they could not ingest enough calories and the expenditure was more. That put them in an energy imbalance situation. They have the right biology for it. That's what triggers anorexia. Yeah. 
And so take me from that point when you sat your daughter down and asked her to do this and she refused. What spiraled from that then? So different people have different experiences with anorexia. In our case, our daughter stopped eating and drinking completely this third day that she was not ingesting any calories, we had to admit her. From that point on, she has been in and out of hospitals, residential centers, inpatient centers over 10 times. She had to be sent also to Colorado to the Eating Recovery Center. That was a phenomenal place. And I'm happy to create the list um, to share with you of what has been helpful, because unfortunately, a lot was not helpful. In California, help for eating disorders is not that advanced. And the places that she's been to, and she's been to many in California, for example, did not help her. And they almost rely on the what we call the revolving door syndrome, which is, oh, your kid is a little bit better, they are out. When they are out, they fall into the sickness again, because we as parents would not be relied on to help them. Once we got to ERC, the Eating Recovery Center in Denver, that's really what made a difference because your kid is not recovered after they are discharged from a recovery center. They are in a better place. Um, However, if you don't help them, if you don't oversee them as a parent, chances are they will fall back into the illness. A big, if not the most important part of recovery happens at home. You've touched on so many things, Nadina. I'm really intrigued by this and, and, you know, massive kudos to you and your I know your husband is a big part of this journey. So to you and your whole family for being on this path together, which I think is another thing we'll talk about in terms of support. You just mentioned that there is a danger that so many of us are subjected to information overload. One doctor might say this or certain physicians in in certain centers in California might do this. And then you might go on the World Wide Web for trusted information, what you think is, and, and actually you're bombarded. And you can actually, there's quite a danger to be misinformed as well. And of course, each family's journey, as you said, will be very, very specific to them. And it will be different probably for every child. But there are some baseline commonalities that I think your journey and the work that you've subsequently done can help us maybe dismantle some of the myths or some of the facts surrounding this condition. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing some of those kind of common misdemeanors that we all think we understand what anorexia is about. Absolutely. It's very important. And again, not all eating disorders start by people dieting, even though many do. Kids, especially girls, are so susceptible to what they see in social media because they see an image, they will become anorexic. Obviously, that's not going to be the case. And that image is not going to affect all the population in the same way. But a kid that has the right biology to develop anorexia, if they start being bombarded with certain body images that they want to emulate, chances are they are going to start engaging in dieting. And that behavior, plus the right biology for anorexia, will develop the eating disorder. And let me tell you that eating disorders are excruciatingly hard work to recover from for the kid and for the families. But um, it's also important to say, and this is almost kind of like the core of my mission, that eating disorders are not a choice. Nobody Nobody, first of all, you cannot choose to have an eating disorder because people that don't have it in their biology are wired to have hunger cues. And the high hunger pains or hunger cues are so strong that you are urged to eat. This is a mechanism that doesn't work well in kids that have anorexia. So actually what happens to them is that the more starved that they are, the better they feel and the less they want to eat. But that doesn't happen to people that don't have that biology. So that's something that in a way contributes to keep getting farther and farther into eating disorder. They don't feel the amount of hunger that a person that doesn't have it have feels. 
No, that makes a lot of sense and probably explains why the recovery is so hard because relapse is so easy. Very easy. I mean, you can see why a child or a young person might feel that they're doing better and the parents start to, because you wish it so well, you don't want to see your child in any kind of pain. So you almost don't want to acknowledge that there might be a, a chance that you might be going through something like that. But goodness, that I hadn't quite realized. So it is to do with the brain messaging and the biology together working in sync, which creates a whole reaction to food, eating, general body image, or does every person have their own triggers of what causes or what makes them think that they can't go near food? It's really what creates anorexia is an energy imbalance. So people will get to that energy imbalance, people that develop anorexia for different reasons. Some people will get to that because they're dieting and they do want to lose weight. Some people will get there because they, again, had a surgery and they can't eat for a period of time normally because they're maybe depressed and they can eat well. There are many reasons why people get to that point. The issue is that when they have the biology to develop anorexia, having going through that energy imbalance will develop the illness. But it's so important to understand this because once the misconception of eating disorders being a product of vanity of family dysfunction or having a mom that it's like too overbearing for example which are the myths associated with anorexia and eating disorders once people understand that it's as simple as a biological process happening in your body you cannot give someone anorexia there's no way, even if you want to, you can't because it's a biological process that happens simply when less calories goes, go in and more, more energy goes out. That's as simple as it is. Yeah, and that's hugely helpful, I'm sure, especially to any parents listening to this who are kind of riddled with guilt or want to play the blame game or find a reason because as parents that's often a way to cope we we want to pinpoint or blame something or someone usually ourselves for what we're facing so i suppose that in itself is probably a massive relief for anyone listening which brings me on to the next part of this question which is what you just said are there external triggers though that when you say a family dysfunction or let's just say the word trauma or a divorce in the home or are there external triggers that might in your case you said it was your daughter's gymnastics passion because everything else as you said in the family life was going swimmingly well according to from all other aspects you couldn't tell and you're almost blindsided but should parents who's children might have a genetic or biological makeup that might lead those girls to feeling prone to getting other issues. Is there a way of knowing whether an external trigger such as an illness in the family or a family divorce or something sad or upsetting could lead a girl down this path or a boy? I shouldn't just say girls. So I tell you a couple of things. First of all, I am not saying that my family was nearly perfect or anything like that, but I, I will go once one step farther and say troubled families even troubled families or people that have gone through trauma in their families that is not even enough to make someone have an eating disorder what is enough to get someone to have an eating disorder is this energy imbalance and again people get to that for different reasons if somebody is depressed and they are not eating yes they can go through an, an energy imbalance and they can develop anorexia if somebody for example is grieving or somebody passed away in the family and they stop ingesting enough calories they very likely develop an eating disorder if they have the bio biology for it so almost the reasons it's a psychosocial illness and the triggers the outside triggers really can be unlimited because it can be anything that puts a person in the situation that they are not eating enough and for somebody can be grieving for somebody else can be dieting for somebody else can be period of depression for somebody else could be as simple as like having dental extractions and they couldn't eat solids and high highly caloric food for a while now what is really challenging is that until somebody develops an eating disorder you don't know 
if that person has the biology for it or not. Like, for example, I don't know if my other daughters have the biology for it or not because their sister had it. We don't know. But what I am doing now that I am better educated in the matter is they are not allowed to have an energy imbalance. That means they need to eat every certain hours. They need to eat high quality, high, highly nutritious food, and they need to eat a balanced diet, not a healthy diet, but a balanced diet. And we talked about that. And I know this might be a bit controversial for some people, but a balanced diet includes everything in a balanced way. Nothing is out of reach. Food is food. So the philosophy food is food, it means we don't really give food emotional value. Emotional value is for feelings, is for relationships. It's not for food. When we take the emotional value of food, we are making our kids a favor. They can really focus their emotionality where it belongs, and it does not belong on the food. Right. So you treat food like fuel, what it is supposed to be. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. And in my house, there are chips and there are cookies and there is salad and there is fruit and there is cake in occasion and everything is there for them to enjoy and to eat as long as they eat every certain amount of hours. I am good with whatever they want, but it's important. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I think balance is key in all areas of life, but particularly if you're struggling and obviously you were in probably, I don't want to say the word luck because you work so hard at it, but your your daughter has been in that statistics or the rates of recovery and people staying in recovery are, are quite shocking. And I believe your daughter has very thankfully made it into that part of the statistics where people are fully recovered, right? Can you explain that part to us? Sure, absolutely. Yes, I think it's a very important part of this process because in the eating disorder community, we like to say in strong recovery, Recovery is something that a person has to work at for life, really for the same reason we just talked before. They need to be mindful and they need to be aware of the fuel their body needs to never go again into an energy imbalance. That's one of the aspects of it. Then the other aspect of it is that, as I was saying, that in California, many of the places for that they treat eating disorders are not really up to date with their research and are not up to date with the most effective and efficient ways of treating eating disorders. I'm not going to get into the why, because you can get into politics, into economics. There are so many different factors onto why. But what concerns us today is that the most effective way to treat eating disorders are evidence-based treatments. What I say by evidence-based treatment, it means family-based treatment, the number one. It simply means that the parents are in charge. And the reason why the parents are in charge of feeding the kid is not because of a, a power struggle, not because we think our kid is not able to feed themselves. It's just because kids that have gone through an eating disorder, their brain is so deprived, they cannot really think straight. That's as easy as I can put it. They don't understand that they can die if they continue on the path of not eating. They really don't understand it. Many times they enter a state of psychosis. It's not pure psychosis per se. It's just a psychotic state created by their brain being starved. They become combative. They can become aggressive. They act in ways that are absolutely not in accordance to what their personalities are. They would do and say things that are unrecognizable. And that's really heartbreaking as a parent to see that. They engage in really risky behavior. And these are usually kids that are really type A and really kind of like precautious kids. These are not kids that naturally will engage in these behaviors. It's the illness itself is driving them to behave like this and to not want to eat. And the less, again, they eat, the, the higher they feel. They feel high from not eating. So you cannot rely on a child to refeed themselves to the point of recovery. You can't do that. That's not going to happen. Your kid does not want to eat. The eating disorder is has hijacked 
their brains and it's not allowing them to eat. It's torturing your child. So what we do in family-based treatment modality is we separate our child from the eating disorder. And many times it's very helpful because I know that the eating disorder is making my kid do this and that and talk to me like this and throw this plate at my head when they don't want to eat. It's not my kid. My kid will never do that. It's the eating disorder. So once you can separate that, you really start treating the eating disorder and you feed them and you use leverage. Obviously, they will still not want to eat. And you have to really be very, very strong. These kids are many times teenagers. Their height is like your height and they can be strong. And it's not easy at all to help somebody recover. It's very, very challenging. But it's the only shot that you have as a parent to help your kid recover is to sit with them meal after meal, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, if you have to, until they hit a weight in which their brain functions exactly at the level that they were pre-anorexia. So another thing about this, it's not a certain weight. For some kids could be gaining 50 pounds to uh, more than to the lowest point um, of their eating disorder. For some kids can be 20 pounds. For some kids can be 80 pounds. You are not going to know it until you can recognize your child again, until they become healthy again. And that's the weight they need to be at. Gosh, there's so much here in terms of the power of the brain and that whole idea around neuroscience, which is a lot of the work that Elevate does in their mentorship program and to teach the children. There is something really powerful in terms of the messaging and everything you've just said about how helpful it is to visualize the anorexia. And I think once we talked about it, you might have called it a beast and and seeing it as something completely different to your child, even though at times it must feel so challenging as a mom or a dad or someone who just wants to see their little baby be okay, but you can see that they're not okay. And actually your brain health is what you're trying to get back to the right levels, not the specific amount of weight, not the specific, but everything else around that to support the brain in order to get the body working and functioning as it should. Exactly. Yes, it's a highly biological illness. And the symptoms, what is really wild is that as the body starts gaining the weight back, you start refeeding your child. All the, these symptoms like of psychosis, of depression, of OCD. OCD, they they usually develop OCD too. Start fading away. So these are not real illnesses that they have. It's the symptoms of the anorexia doing that to them. And when their brain gets refed, that's when you can see them again. And if they did not have any of these before anorexia, most of these are just going to dissipate. Now, I know it sounds easy. It's brutally hard to not only dedicate the time, the cooking. Some people would tell me, oh, it's like having a newborn. And I, I was thinking, not really, because a newborn wants to eat. I'm sitting with this teenager who doesn't want to eat. So we are engaging on a fight every single meal. And that gets better with time. And the more their brain gets fed, also gets eventually better and better. But but it's a lot. and. I have to say that my daughter fought really like a hero to get better. And I want to remark that even one thing to get better for them, it's not an assurance that they will. And as you said, the statistics are really grime, but I want to give people a lot of hope that those statistics that we see that are only 50% of kids will recover and um, it will take an average of seven years. It's like when you see that as a parent starting to struggle with this, it is so discouraging. It creates so much fear even to try because it's like, oh my God, this is going to take seven years and it's only 50% chances. It's important to know that this data is not current and this data doesn't really reflect the family-based treatment approach. This data is really dated, is based on the old fashioned way to treat anorexia, 
which is really kind of like blame the family and have the child recover when they are ready, which is really the perfect recipe to kill someone because they will never be ready. Or the time that can entail for them to be ready, how many years are you going to allow this kid to be sick if they even get to the point where they can get better, if they never get the nutrients to feed their brain and want to make the decision to get better. It's a decision that they are not able to make. They can't make the decision to get better because anorexia is not allowing them to do it and their biology is not allowing them to do it. So we as parents make that decision for them and treat food as medicine. And so you wouldn't negotiate whether or not your child got medicine for an illness. Why would you negotiate the food part? No, you can't because a kid that is undergoing anorexia they are not going to make the right choices. Again, it goes all back to the same. They can't make the right choice because if the right choice is a high fat, high calorie dish because their brain needs the fat to start healing and their organs many times are starting to shut down and they need the nutrients. The body, the girls lose their periods. They start losing their hair. Their bodies start to shut down and a kid is unable to make the right choice so you just you take that away from them and in a way it's a favor that you're making because it's excruciatingly hard for a kid that's undergoing anorexia to make a decision on what to eat giving them that decision is putting them in such a bind as a parent you don't want to do that you just make the decision for them and you save them from that You've said that so powerfully and you've said it so convincingly with such conviction. I can hear the passion in your voice, but having sort of being on the receiving end of that, I believe you completely and I'm completely convinced, but I am trying to imagine a parent who feels completely helpless, maybe hasn't got the right advice, maybe feels really isolated, feels very alone, very scared. And like you said, the fear of it, the unknown, the amount of time, whether or not they're actually going to make it. I think parents maybe shut down sometimes and maybe the sharing part of this or the open conversations, the open dialogue doesn't happen. And I wonder what you might say to those parents who, because I think you and I are very much or aligned with our belief system when creating a sense of community or trying to take your own experiences and sharing is better than trying to soldier on by yourself in, in, in a world where you're trying to do this by yourself is not really the answer. And particularly, maybe I'm being generalist here, but lots of mothers feel guilt and they feel that they've got to power through. I can do this. I can do this until they break. But I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about any parent feeling a sense of shame or guilt or just helplessness and, and complete loss but how they can seek support and how they can create a community around them. Like you said, they might have jobs, they might have other children like you did. It's a full-time, maybe more than full-time, overtime job to help nurse a child back to health. What are the things that you can do? And let me add something that's also a big fear is your relationship with your child will get completely ruined because this is confrontation and confrontation and confrontation many, many times a day with your child. So that's the big fear is also my relationship with my child will be beyond repair if I do this. And that that happens even in a neurotypically healthy child brain when you're their teenagers, right? Because they're so busy rebelling against you that if you feel like that with a child who isn't ill, I'm like, I can only imagine how amplified that must be with a child who is struggling with something on top of that. So there are different things that I would tell a parent, or I would even have told myself when I was starting this journey and I had no knew nothing about family-based treatment. The first thing is that you gotta really think of an eating disorder, and especially anorexia, as if it was, because it is a life-threatening disease. So if it makes it easier, think of it as being, God forbid, cancer. Would you give your kid a choice on treatment? No, you wouldn't. They have to go through chemotherapy. That's what they have to do. And you're going to have them do it. There's no choice. They need to do what they need to do because their life has to be saved. This is exactly the same. This is life-threatening. People die every day from anorexia. So you treat this as a life-threatening illness and you just do what you have to do. It doesn't matter if your child doesn't like it. You just do what you need to do. You got to get empowered and do it for your child because really... That's the only chance they have 
are you not going to give it to them? You got to give them the chance they have. And the chance they have really depends on the parents and, and feeling them. Now, on the other question, which I totally understand, the guilt, the time, the community, the isolation, they are big ones. I found the community. My community saved me. Having my mentor guide that I found in, and I will share the information later, there is a community that supports people with anorexia and especially fosters evidence-based treatments without judgment of other ways of treatment, but truly you don't want to waste your precious time and your kid's health in trying other things when treating a kid aggressively by feeding them three meals and three snacks a day can really get your child back in half of the time than regular treatment would. This community is a community of caregivers that have been there. Many people are on the other side. Like me, we have been through it, but actually I met my community when I was at the very beginning of my journey. I would go there and it's a private Facebook group and it's also Feast. Feast is the biggest group that support this type of treatment. And you can ask questions, you can get resources, you can get free workshops, you can get tips, you can ask specific questions. There's nothing that we have not heard of before, even if it concerns your child, siblings, grandparents, your spouse, people just bend and they seek advice. And it's so powerful to hear how other people that walk through those steps before you handle what this challenge that you have in front of you. What are ideas? What are suggestions? I have tried this, but it's not working. What else can I do? That's important, obviously. You see, you surrounded yourself with people that were in the know, were there medical professionals and other therapists and things that you could also get access to that might be able to shed light on some of this? Yes. So it's important to find professionals that subscribe or at least support family-based treatment. Now, there's something I want to say regarding therapy is that in family-based treatment, therapy is not so important at the beginning because what is urgent for that body, for those organs and that brain is just to be fed. Once they are fed and feeling well and back to themselves, they can engage in all therapy they need and that will be super helpful. Engaging a kid, and I have experience with this personally, early on with a therapist it's going to yield to nothing because they can't express themselves. They are not open to it. It's something they don't want to do. They don't even want to regard. So of course, they are not going to engage in therapy. And therapizing someone about their past and the relationship with their mother, that's going to just waste precious time on a body that just needs to be fed right away. A lot of this really making a lot of sense to me. I wanted to ask you also, given the position that you're in and obviously going through all those emotions that you must have gone through in one of those darkest times of having to fight and combat. I guess sharing that with your community was important, but anyone listening now, what were the things that you did in terms of, well, what were the emotions, first of all? What were you feeling in some of those dark days? It was a lot of despair. I felt lost. I was despaired. I was anguished. I couldn't understand all of a sudden how our family went from being just a common family, normal family, everyday functioning, to this almost completely, I, I don't know if broken is the right word, but like... Imbalanced in some imbalanced. way. I think it's almost like an instrument that doesn't sound right. We did not know what to do with what was happening to us. We had one kid in the hospital. We had no idea what was happening, how she was going to get better, if she was going to get better. It was, I would say, feelings of loss. And then I had a lot of feelings. It was very difficult to see other people moving on in life and like, okay, their kids are now a sophomore in high school or they are moving on and my kid is in the hospital or my kid is in a treatment center and my kid is now, again, I'm feeding her six times a day at home. So there's a lot of frustration. So it took me, I would say, it was a whole process to get to the point where I was ready to 
learn from what was happening to me, make sense of the pain, make sense of the suffering, and just try to do something helpful with it. It did not happen right away. You are in survival mode. So also a lot of what you feel is numbness because you just got to function. I have to feed this kid six times a day. I have to really be ready for the next battle because when I present this plate of food to her, she's going to tell me I'm not eating this. And I will have to use a lot of patience, a lot of strategies, a lot of convincing, a lot of leverage or whatever it takes to have her eat. So I also remember that I told myself that my energy was going to be concentrated on that. I did not even have energy to expand in other things. I could not expend energy in extended family, extended social life. I just had to be there for my family, especially for my oldest daughter. I want to say that I have been so blessed because my husband and I have been on the same page and he has been a big part of this. Even though I was the main caregiver just because I did not have a full-time job and he did, but he was a huge emotional support. He did a lot of the work too on weekends and he would take time of work to help. It's impossible almost for only one person. It's not a one person show. This takes a lot and it's overwhelming. Yes, it is. And you need help. I was blessed to have the help of my husband. People use the helps of grandparents. People use the help of neighbors if they have to. People use the help of school nurses if they have to, if the kids go, go to school and they need to be supervised because they do need to be supervised at lunch. They have to be supervised. This kid is never going to recover if they are not supervised when they come, come out of um, treatment center or if they have an acute eating disorder. I have seen that this illness breaks families apart. This illness breaks marriages apart. The blaming game, and many times people are not on the same page. For example, I have seen a lot of moms wanting to do family-based treatment. And then, for example, the dad is like, no, she needs to eat. If she wants to eat, she will eat. And they don't really get it. And that creates so much anger. And yeah, I have seen a lot of families, unfortunately, fall apart. It's a lot. Goodness, I applaud your effort. I applaud your incredible energy for this, because as you say, my heart is really heavy just listening to all of this. But practically what you're saying is almost, you know, like the fact that the, the child is on a journey, but so is the carer, the parent, the acceptance part of it, then the actual practical side of it, the implementation of the plans to be able to support the person, but where you are mentally, emotionally, all depends on whether or not you can be the effective care for the child in front of you. So I think it takes a huge amount of recognition and obviously kudos to, to parents such as yourselves that are so dedicated and committed to the cause. Obviously, I, I completely understand that all parents love their children and want to do the best, but sometimes circumstances, and like you said, if you don't have the support, they can't always give that. And that can be quite demoralizing and like you say fill you with all sorts of other external ex things can affect your day-to-day -day, which which obviously is is not an easy thing to digest so I'm grateful that you're here I'm grateful that you're sharing this information I really hope that other parents and carers that might feel this level of helplessness will find some sort of solace in knowing that they're not a alone there's people like you out there but I wanted to ask you one thing about the support network what was it like and your family makeup. And it was lovely to hear that you had such a strong foundation with your husband. But what was it like with your other daughters? And what was it like for them to see their sister in that kind of suffering? And how did you explain that? Or what kind of conversations do you have with the other members of the family that are witnessing everything? That was very difficult. And usually siblings are a casualty of what's happening in the family. The parents Many times we don't have the time and the energy to dedicate to other, the other kids as they need or, or as you would in a normal situation. Plus, the kids see their sibling suffering, the sibling being in the hospital. It's super scary. They are scared for their sibling. They're scared for the, the parents and they're scared for themselves and for the family dynamic. That's so strange all of a sudden. 
We were very honest from the beginning with my other daughters. So I have two other younger daughters. We were honest, honest as we could be on what was happening. We allowed them to ask questions. And one of the things that we decided was that we were not going to be secretive about it in our family, meaning we were not going to just keep what was happening to ourselves. We allow the kids to share as they needed to and as they wanted it to. And that helped them also understand that there's nothing to be ashamed of. Being ashamed just adds to the stigma and this is an illness and there are illnesses of the brain and there are illnesses of the body. And anorexia is maybe at the intersection of both. It's not something that anybody caused. It's something that their sister developed and they could share with their friends and their teachers if they wanted to. One day, my middle daughter came and she said that she wanted me and her to explain to her class about eating disorders and about anorexia. And I feel that that was really a turnaround point. It was so empowering for her and it was so beautiful. And the girls in her class were so receptive and they would start telling us, oh, and I... I am dieting on um, in my family. This other person has this other mental health issue, and it was it it just not only uh, created an open conversation about eating disorders, but really about mental health. And I think that at that point, it was just so powerful. And I experienced, and my daughter experienced that really when you open up and you are honest, you receive so much you connect in such an authentic way and also your other kids learn that you are not only saying that you will do anything for your kids you are doing it you're giving everything for this ill kid that you have right now and i feel that the siblings it's really empowering for them to see that if they one day need you to be there for them, you will be there for them in the same way that you are there for their sibling. So not easy, not a picnic in the park, but there's a lot also that you can grow from this experience. And again, make meaning of the suffering when you are ready to and just pour it in something that's good, pour it in connecting with the community, pour it in connecting with people that can benefit from your experience because they are starting to work in your path and they can gain a lot from listening on how you handle a lot of things that are common to this journey. I'm reflecting on that whole idea of the skills that your other children start to develop because they're exposed to these things and around resilience and understanding the human compassion, the fact that we are not all going to be on a perfect path all the time. And they see all this probably, and not that I wish it upon any young person, but if a young person is to go through it with the support of the right adults, then possibly you can, like you said, when the time is right, turn some of these really horrible, as you say, suffering moments into something positive and a, a change for better, which is exactly what you've done. And I'm I'm so grateful for your time and offering that. And I know you told me that you would be kind enough to share some of those resources. So anyone listening to this, I will link them in the show notes so that people who are looking for websites, books to read, the face group work that you mentioned, I would love for people to have access to those bits if they would like to read more on it. And if people wanted maybe to get in touch with you, Nadina, are you still working with people on a coaching practice? What I start doing is I volunteer my time to help families and families that are in need of guidance that want to hear from my story, that want to know how we did things. They are welcome to contact me and from my heart, I will share with them what can be helpful. And that has been such a rewarding part of advocating for mental health. I want to say that my daughter, Sophie, now is doing great. She's sustaining her recovery. How old is she now? I know she's 20. She has become a very prominent agent and advocate for change in the mental health realm. She belongs to many nonprofits and she's a speaker and she 
has really made a lot of meaning of all the suffering she went through. If you allow me, I like to close with a message about mental illness stigma. And this, obviously, I talk about eating disorders, but I think that it really applies to all mental health. And I am working on stopping the mental illness stigma. Mental health is health. Some people have illnesses of the body, some people have illnesses of the mind, and both are to be treated with respect, empathy, and without judgment. We have the power by the way we model how we treat ourselves and other people to make a fat phobic free world. We have the power to stop judging. We have the power to stop focusing only on how we look and focusing on what we do and the power we have to connect with, our, with other human beings. Let's bless our kids by radically accepting ourselves and modeling for them how they can accept not only themselves, but other people in their world. Let's help them focus their energy on what really matters and their precious energy into things that are enriching for them and enriching for the world and to make the world a better place. Oh, here, here to that, Nadina. You've made me all warm and fuzzy and you've absolutely elevated my hope for, for young folks that are struggling with all, as you say, concerns. Obviously, you and I are both on a path in our own different angles of trying to empower young girls. And this is a huge part of it. It's been probably the most asked question on all my DMs and all my emails about when I'm going to address more conversations on young girls and body image and eating disorders and how all of that affects self-confidence. So I think what you've just said has been extremely enlightening and very empowering. I really can't thank you enough for your time. I really appreciate everything you've done. And I wish you and your daughter, Sophie, the best of luck. And I hope she continues to thrive as she is now. Thank you, Ramita. Thank you for having this space for people to be able to express themselves, for people to be able to share their stories. I believe that we can say from night to day, let's stop mental health stigma. But what you are doing is really putting it to work. You are really allowing this space to be that, to be a source of light and to be a source of communication and openness. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. I really, really do take those words to heart. So thank you very much. And anyone listening, do check out the show notes, do share these conversations out with other people, because there are lots of people who could benefit. And I I would love for it to be something that keeps circulating and getting to people around the world. So thank you, Nadina. Thank you, Ramita. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.